All right. So welcome, everyone. Um, first, I want to express my gratitude for your presence here. Um, it's not always the easiest nor the most desirable thing after a long day to attend a still longer class on biblical interpretation. And, uh, you know, having put a, a lot of effort into the class myself, I do greatly appreciate your diligence and hunger to learn. So I hope not to disappoint. Now that said, um, you guys are well aware, I've already pointed it out, this is a class on biblical interpretation, um, how to read the Bible in other words, but a unique and often overlooked aspect of biblical interpretation. Now, I'll get to terms and definitions later, um, quite later, in fact. Right now, I just want to introduce this class to you by means of relating an experience that I've had in the Scriptures, one that I'm sure you're also familiar with. And that experience is being totally mystified over how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament Scriptures. So that's the experience, being confused, bewildered, not able to quite understand what the New Testament authors, Jesus and the apostles, are doing with the prophets and the law and the writings of the Old Testament. Now, for me, two instances stick out in my memory. The first was reading the Gospel of Matthew, which is a gospel that is loaded with Old Testament quotations, references, and allusions, right? All all throughout it, Matthew, this was spoken to fulfill what was said through the prophet, or there's an indirect reference, or there's even still a smaller allusion, just a word here and there by way of reference to the Old Testament. So, I traced various said um, quotations back to their original context, and more often than not, was not able to put the pieces together. Um, Now, it was rather early in my engagement with the Scriptures, so I chalked it up to my lack of understanding. Let me pass these out to you guys. So yeah, I chalked it up to, I wasn't familiar enough with the Bible yet. Didn't quite understand how it was going, and certainly that was true. Then I came to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, which reads, it's there for you on the screen. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So at last, right, I'm thinking to myself, we have a crystal clear Old Testament reference. Um, It seemed obviously straightforward enough. Uh, The portion in quotation there is the last bit, out of Egypt I called my son. So, um, and it was actually used as a reference uh, for the justification of Jesus being brought from Egypt to Nazareth, right? He fled because of the persecution of Herod, When Herod died and another had risen in his place, it was safe for Jesus to come back. So he left Egypt, arrived back in Nazareth. And uh, Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, as his justification. So I thought, okay, there it is. I'm going to be able to go to the Old Testament now. It's so clear and be able to see 
these messianic overtones, some crystal clear prophecy about Jesus as the fulfillment of the scripture. But then you go to Hosea 11.1, and actually, I'll read it for you, the few verses there. I don't have it on the screen. Uh, If you'd like, you can turn there in your Bible. But it says, Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And then here's our passage, out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went off from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So, again, it's a passage not about the Messiah, not about the Son of God, but about Israel, about Yahweh, the Lord, recounting his fatherly care and love for his people. So, again, here I am in this situation, confused, but mostly frustrated. Now, I conceded the apostles' interpretation has to be right, but I couldn't understand how they got there. It didn't make sense to me. Now, the second instance I had in kind of a similar situation was in a sermon on Ephesians chapter 4. Now, that passage as it begins is a passage about spiritual gifts, Um, and that was, of course, the pastor's theme. And the verse in question, or the verses in question, were verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians 4, which read as follows. They're there on the screen. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there he's talking about spiritual gifts, yes? He says, therefore it says, quoting the scripture, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So the, the apostle introduces the concept of spiritual gifts and then undergirds it with a quotation from Psalm 68. Now, the pastor made some explanation that I cannot remember anymore, and in hindsight, more of a dodge than an explanation. And so once again, I turn to the passage, Psalm 68. We can go there if you'd like. Psalm 68, I'll read a few verses surrounding it. Again, I got there, and I was only more confused. I was missing something. I'm picking up here in verse 15 of Psalm 68. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, and the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. Verse 18, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts from among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may God may dwell there. Again, I was missing something, namely how the apostles, the apostle Paul in this instance, can read that psalm, what's being said there, and relate it to Christ. doesn't quite make sense to me, and it didn't for a very long time. And I suspect that I'm not alone. If you trace, I think, most of the Old Testament quotations back to their original context, you'll find there's, again, something similar going on that's hard 
to understand. And so when we examine the situation, our inability to understand what the apostles are doing, questions abound. Namely, do the apostles interpret the Bible in the same manner that we do? If so, why does it seem so strange to us? If not, then what's the deal? Are we wrong? Are the apostles wrong? Why does it seem like they're less concerned with authorial intent, context, and other matters that are so important to us? All right, again, go to that Hosea 11.1 passage. Authorial intent, that's like the basis of what it means for us to interpret the Bible. Matthew's not doing that. Context, again, Matthew's not really using context. All these things that matter to us so much. Or is it maybe that the apostles are permitted to use the Bible in a way that we are not, because they're apostles, right? They have that authority. Or maybe it's my problem. Um, Am I too dense to see what's obviously going on in front of me? So that's my experience, and that's going to lead us into this class. But before we move on, I would like to ask, or I'd like to just open things up, rather, uh, to ask if anyone's had a similar experience with the Old Testament. Mike, I see you nodding your head. Yes? Yes, okay, that's fair enough. Jim, you too? Yeah. yeah. All right, it's a, it's a very common experience. Go into the Old Testament, or rather, seeing how the apostles used the Old Testament and being slightly confused. Now, it's a lot to confront, um, and to be quite honest, it's pretty bewildering. The Bible itself is an often perplexing and uh, naughty book. And so biblical interpretation can be even more so, even more perplexing and at times discouraging. So all that said, the aim of this class is, in a word, retrieval. The aim of this class is retrieval. And what I hope to do is recover a more ancient approach to the Scripture that in recent times, or, uh, or in recent times, rather, is, being, is in danger of being lost, or really in some quarters, it is altogether lost. And so what I want to do then is recover an interpretive framework where what the apostles are doing One, it doesn't seem so strange, and then two, it actually starts to make a little sense. So I hope by the end of this class, right, having gone through these seven weeks, we'll be able to go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Psalm 68, and really the entire Old Testament, and see, okay, that's what the apostles are doing. It makes sense now. I see how they're reading the Bible, and not just to see how they're reading the Bible, but for yourself to replicate that same process, to be able to read like the apostles read. And really, the, the, the reason I want to do this, and, and I, well, let me speak from my own experience. Uh, it's my life to interpret the Scriptures. And what I'm teaching to you through this class is something that has, to me, been, well, uh, brand new. I'm learning most of this as I've gone along, and it has opened up the Scriptures to me in a way that I've never been able to see them. 
In fact, I had grown somewhat disenchanted with the modern approach to scriptures. It was a lot of information. It was a lot of facts, but it was short on meaning, and I was struggling with that. And in fact, there are times in my preaching where it really reflected that. And then being able to get into this new understanding for me has opened up the scriptures in an entirely different way. And I think why I want to mainly share this with our congregation is because I think it puts the Bible back in your hands. We are very dependent upon historical reconstruction, upon all the fancy things that commentators have to give us to make sense of the Scripture. But really, that's not the case. If you have Jesus Christ, if you know Him, if you know His story, you have the key to all the Scriptures. So it puts it back in your hands and so on and so forth. So I'm babbling a little bit. But the goal, the goal is then not retrieval for retrieval's sake, just because we can, right? It's like, okay, we're going to do this just because it's fun to do, but rather we're going to retrieve this ancient way of reading because it's worth retrieving. Again, as it pertains to modern interpretation, our modern method has its strengths and weaknesses, as all such methods do. But it's weak, as I've already mentioned, in one particular area, and it's a very glaring area. So, again, I want to explain. If you read modern commentaries as the primary and best examples of the modern interpretive method, they are good for certain things, right? So, if you consult any, there's like series of comment, commentaries that have either each book of the, Old, the New Testament or the Old Testament or all of them. And if you go to them, they're really good for clarifying historical events, So this would have been understood this way. Here's some extra information about this or something like that, right? They're really good for resolving and pointing out linguistic details. So I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. So they say, if you go to the Greek, you go to the Hebrew, you'll be able to see this, right? This word means this, and it's used in this way in a secular context. Again, very helpful. And again, many other things that they're really strong at. Yet, ancient commentaries as the primary and best examples of the pre-modern or the ancient method of interpreting Scripture are much better at doing the thing that Christian teaching and preaching must do, and that is pointing the church, pointing the individual believer to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of weird things that go on in that ancient reading, and I'm about to show you some of them. But the one thing you cannot fault them for is the centrality of Christ. Interpretation is about Jesus Christ. And if you go to the Old Testament and you use all the modern commentaries, he's absent. He's nowhere to be found. But then you read these other ones, and the ancient ones, and he's all over the place. So in other words, the thing that we're in danger of losing, that we want to recover, is a thoroughly Christ-centered approach to the Scriptures. And again, we tend to think that Understanding the Scripture is a matter of having the right tools in our toolbox, right? Knowing the inductive method or knowing kind of grammatical structure, knowing this and that. Those are all helpful tools, and we think, okay, this is what it means to interpret Scripture. This is, you know, these are the tools that we can use to uncover 
what the author originally meant. But again, the ancients would say, those are important, but not that important. What you need is Jesus Christ. He's the center. So again, it's less a matter of having the right tools, knowing how to use them, knowing when to use them, and it's more about knowing Jesus Christ. And if you can know him, all the scriptures then to make sense. So, Another word about this project here, embracing a pre-modern approach to Scripture, not uncritically, right? We're not going to just naively take everything on board. Um, it's not so much a demolition project as it is a building project. In fact, throughout this course, we're going to be doing very little tearing down. I'm not going to be saying everything you know about Scripture is wrong. We need to start from a completely different foundation. That's not the case. In fact, our modern way of reading the Scripture needs less to be thrown out than it does need to be adjusted a little. It serves as the right foundation. What you already know about reading the Scriptures serves you very well, but we want to build on that now. We want to add a framework on top of that. And again, I think that you're going to find the building that we're being asked to do is very intuitive. It's something that is already quite familiar to your biblical instincts. But for all that, no matter how familiar this is, if I rush through things and um, I cut loose the fire hose, I think we might have some trouble. So given the possibility of stumbling blocks, right? It was various times where I was kind of, well, you know, a little bit taken back or just didn't realize, you know, how fresh or new this way was, again, there could be some possibility for stumbling blocks. So I don't want to take that lightly. Therefore, the aim in this class is to move slowly and meticulously through all the coursework here. So we're going to cover a lot of, uh, a lot of territory, but at a manageable pace. Um, again, a pace that leaves room for questions and divergences, and unforeseen obstacles. Because again, the goal here is to build faith and not tear it down. So, um, purpose of this class. Any questions before we move on there about kind of the direction we're going, things like that? We're all good? Okay. All right. Well, now we can get to the fun part. I'll cover our syllabus toward the end of class, but in the meantime... It's necessary to get familiar with our modern approach to biblical interpretation and the pre-modern approach to biblical interpretation, right? I want us to kind of get familiar with how we use it, kind of the presumptions that we have when we come to the Scripture and the presumptions that ancient readers had when they come to the Scripture or came to the Scripture. And so mind the gap is what I'm calling this lecture. In the subway system in London, um, I had the opportunity to go there in 2015. Um, they call it the tube, right? Uh, you encounter those words, mind the gap everywhere you go, namely between uh, the train door and uh, the station platform. Mind the gap. And if you don't mind it, you're going to step off into oblivion. And that's our aim here, to mind the gap between these two interpretive approaches, the ancient one and the modern one. I want to make you guys a little uncomfortable tonight. I want to kind of 
show you what it was like, what was kind of the standard approach to kind of shake things up. And again, I mean to be purely objective here. I'm not going to argue for one against the other. I'm not going to say this one's right and this one's wrong. I just want you to be familiar and comfortable with the uncomfortable distance between the two. Right? That's the whole goal tonight, because if we don't do this um, and we jump into it, you're going to be lost and a little bit confused. So I want to kind of introduce you to where we're going. Keith Staglin, um, in his book, The Letter and the Spirit of Biblical Interpretation, um, a book that actually we're going to be relying on heavily next week, he says, as with other beliefs and practices of the ancient church, There is an initial strangeness also when we encounter the exegetical techniques of early Christians. An initial strangeness. He says, when we compare the basic exegetical techniques of professional interpreters today to those of ancient antiquity, there seems to be a fairly wide chasm. What they did with the Bible is not what I was taught to do with the Bible. So though we're not going to be too extensive tonight, um, I think a simple compare and contrast will help us to grapple with that initial strangeness. Thus, it's important that we mind the gap because, again, proceeding without it, things are going to become too esoteric and too conceptual. And taking time then to walk through these various examples puts things on a ground level at a place where everyone, no matter their experience in interpreting the Bible can manage it, and you can make sense of it and hopefully be less mystified by it. And so all that naturally leads me to just my last concern before we move on. We're not yet coming to what the Bible says about itself. We won't do that till class, let's see, what is it, class uh, four. We're not even going to get to what the Bible says about itself till class four. We're going to go the long way around. Um, but instead, what we want to do is spend time in the ages after the apostles. Now, we'll come to the Bible, but I want to delay for two reasons. First, I feel that if I approach to the Scriptures right off the bat, it's going to be a bit of a trump card. Um, again, as I said, I intend to make the case for this more ancient type of reading. But what I want to use the Scriptures to do is open up the conversation rather than to shut it down, right? A lot of the time, that's the way the Scriptures are used. This is what it says. This is the way it's going to be, and that's it. I want to go the long way around, kind of set the stage so that we could come to the Scriptures with, you know, a more open uh, mind, because I don't want to, again, uh, use the Scriptures to shut things down. Yes? Oh, the exegetical techniques. Absolutely. So uh, exegesis is just the fancy word for determining what the Scriptures are saying, right? So eisegesis would be the opposite. Eisegesis is reading into the text, right? So I can come to the passage, and if I'm doing eisegesis, I'm not really reading it. I'm just making it say what I want to say. Exegesis is the opposite. I go to the passage, and I'm using exegetical techniques to pull from the passage what it is actually saying. And so what Staglin is saying in that quote there is that 
our exegetical techniques, and we'll come to those um, in week three. We're going to talk a lot about how we interpret the Bible. The ones we use are not the ones that the ancient commentators used. So like if you compare, let's, let's say Tom Wright. He's an amazing Bible teacher today. If you compare the way he uses the Bible and the techniques that he does and that he uses to exegete the passage, they're not the same ones that Augustine used. They're not the same ones that uh, Origen used. And in fact, we're going to come to Origen and John Calvin, and I want to show you their different techniques. But um, that's what kind of Staglin's getting at there. And when you put the two together, you look at the ancients, you say, that's weird. I've never read it that way. I've never looked at it that way. Does that help, Jim? Does that get it across? Sorry. I, uh, and if guys, if there is any confusion about terminology, uh, do the same. Just stop me, and I will clarify, and, and uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Um, so, again, the last point I want to make is that not only um, I want to use the Bible to open up the conversation, then, two, um, the interpretations that we're going to consider in just a moment come from the same Bible. So, obviously, there's some disagreement about what the Scriptures actually say and about how best to read them. That's why I want to take the long way around to the Bible. Um, okay, any questions there? We're going to move on here. All right. Sorry, all the boring introductory stuff. So that said, I want to look at the interpretive methods of two giants in church history. Uh, Origen, as you see on the screen, and John Calvin. Um, and for two reasons. One because they are, in some sense, representative of the pre-modern and modern interpretive methods. Um, they're representatives of that. So you can go to John Calvin and largely say, he's kind of the father of how we read the Scripture today. And then you can go to Origen and, roughly speaking, say, he's the father of how they read the Scriptures in the past, Right? So if we're going to go and compare them, it's only right that we go to the two heavyweights and kind of use them, the best examples, as um, our compare and contrast. And the other reason we're going to use these two is because they wrote so much. Calvin has so many commentator, commentaries. Origen has so many commentaries, and there's ample material to compare and contrast. It's not always that way. So um, they provide a really good example. And so you can see there on the screen, we're going to use the parable of the Good Samaritan um, as our test case. We're going to look at how Origen reads the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we're going to read, uh, see how John Calvin reads the parable of the Good Samaritan. Any questions there? Okay, right, rather straightforward. So, again, and we want to use the Good Samaritan as a test case because in almost all books on biblical interpretation that I've read, um, either Origen's or Augustine's interpretation of this passage, the Good Samaritan, um, is presented as an example of what not to do, right? So I remember opening up my first, you know, uh, I think it was uh, John MacArthur's preaching or handbook on preaching, and you open it up, and they kind of get you an introduction, and then you get to uh, kind of, all right, it's time to go. And then they present what Augustine, what Origen, what others have done with 
the parable of Good Samaritan, they say, don't do that. That's exactly what bad reading looks like. So it's a good foil then to kind of do this compare and contrast. So um, if you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 will be in verse 25 through uh, all the way down to verse 37. I don't have it on the screen. It's just too much to fit on there, so you'll just have to reference it there in your Bible. Okay. Looks like we're all ready. All right. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26 And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then here's our passage in question, verse 30. But Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35, on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So it's rather straightforward, uh, the parable, uh, the point of the parable, rather. Um, And so now that we have the gist, let's turn to Origen's interpretation. Um, This is from a sermon. Um, on this passage. Origen speaking, he says, Jesus, he teaches that the man going down was the neighbor of no one except him who willed to keep the commandments has prepared him and is prepared himself to be a neighbor to everyone who needs help. For this is what is found after the parable as its end. Which of these three does it seem to you is the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? Neither the priest nor the Levite was his neighbor, But, as the teacher of the law himself answered, he who showed pity was his neighbor. Hence, the Savior says, go and do likewise. Now, as it accords with our modern uh, understanding, Origen's right on target. He hasn't said anything strange. We're, We're all in agreement. What Jesus does here, what Origen points out, is that he inverts the lawyer's question, and he points it back at him. He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, who was being 
the neighbor. So it's not a matter of defining one's neighbor. That is, who should I be neighborly to? Who qualifies and who doesn't qualify? But instead, he says, it's about each person themselves being a neighbor to others. He turns the, uh, the, the lawyer's question on its head and points it right back at him. And so as Origen defines it, a neighbor is one who wills to keep the commandments and is prepared himself to be a neighbor to everyone who needs help. So again, he says a neighbor is the one who wants to obey the will of God. A neighbor is the one who will be a neighbor to anyone in need. So thus, the lawyer's critical gaze, he said this, the passage says, to test Jesus, it's turned back at him. And ours too, right? It's redirected inward. The question is put to us, am I being a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor? So far, so good, right? That's fairly uncontroversial. Virtually all commentators would agree with Origen's interpretation. Um, in what follows, however, Origen uh, takes us places that someone like John Calvin or virtually all modern commentators don't want to go. And we'll call what Origen is up to here mystical reading, because that's what he calls it. His interpretation is the mystical interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what he does then is go on to interpret the various elements of the parable. Now, we can't touch upon them all in such a mystical manner. Let's continue. He says, there we are, but it happened that first a priest and then a Levite were going down on the same road. For the priest saw him. I think this means the law. So he's interpreting the priest as the law. And he says, and the Levite saw him. That is, in my view, the prophetic word. So the Levite stands for the prophets. And when they had seen him, they passed by and left him. Providence, origin continues, was saving the half-dead man for him who was stronger than the law and the prophets, namely for the Samaritan. The name means guardian. He is the one who neither grows drowsy nor sleeps as he guards Israel. The Jews had said to him, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Though he denied having a demon, he was unwilling to deny that he was a Samaritan, for he knew that he was a guardian. There's a lot there. We're going to take time to unpack it. But here, we come upon that uncomfortable territory that I mentioned earlier. Origen and his interpretation understands the parable of the Good Samaritan as a mystical summary of salvation history. The law represented by a priest and the prophetic word represented by a Levite passed by the half-dead man, the human race, according to Origen's interpretation, because he says, providence was saving the half-dead man for him who was stronger than the law and the prophets, namely the Samaritan. So according to Origen's interpretation, the Samaritan is Christ, who is able to do what the old covenant institutions, the law, right? Think of the Torah and the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all their preaching were not able to do, and in fact, would not do. So Jesus, in this case, is the Samaritan. Now, 
How he comes to equate the priest and the Levite with the law and the prophets is straightforward enough, right? Uh, priests uh, ministering the law, the Levites having uh, something of a prophetic role. You can kind of see what origin is up to there. However, his identification of Christ with the Samaritan needs some explaining. And origin makes this identification on two grounds, okay? Now, the first is the meaning of the name or title Samaritan. That's the first thing he uses to justify. And then the second thing is when Jesus was accused of being a Samaritan, that he, in fact, did not deny it. So, as for the actual title Samaritan, it traces back, at a, uh, it traces back to the phrase to guard. And, in fact, it probably means the name Samaritan, something like guardians of the Torah. Now, you kind of know a little bit about the history of the Samaritans, and they're um, kind of uh, an offshoot of the Jewish people. And so that name, guardians of the Torah, makes sense, right? They thought they were worshiping Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. That was the right place, so on and so forth. Anyway, guardians of the Torah is what it means. So in that sense, um, Origen does a little bit of etymology, and he says, Jesus is the true Samaritan because he's the true guardian. And he finds that justification, calling Jesus a Samaritan, calling him a guardian, in Psalm 121, verse 4. He quotes it in that passage, um, which in our Bibles reads, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. So our translations read keep, and his translation reads guards. So he, see what he's doing, right? So he sees Samaritan, and then he does the etymology of Samaritan, and he says it means guardian. And then he connects guardian to Psalm 121, where it says that God, Yahweh, is a guardian of his people, and he says it points to Christ. Christ is the Samaritan. Now, while we might not agree with Origen's interpretive moves, or while we might find them uncomfortable initially, at least he shows his work, right? It's not as arbitrary as we might suppose, but there is at least a reasoning there. You can see how he gets to where he is. Now, the question is, is he using the Bible rightly? Should we be doing that? Is Origen justified in doing that? But that's, we'll come to that. But clearly, here's the point, he's operating on different assumptions about the text than we are, right? Who reading the Samaritan in that passage is going to say, that's Christ, and here's how we're going to get there. It's not typically the same moves that we make. Um, So the parable not only has the straightforward meaning, remember we talked about that initially with origin, but it has also a deeper mystical meaning, as he would call it. And that mystical meaning points toward Christ. And so next, in an interesting turn, he makes an appeal to Jesus' own words in confrontation with the Jewish, Jewish people. This comes from John chapter 8, verses 48 and 49. He says, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So from this exchange, Origen deduces more evidence from his interpretation. Jesus explicitly denies one of their accusations 
having a demon, but not the other. Origen says, though he denied having a demon, he was unwilling to deny that he was a Samaritan, for he knew that he was a guardian. So Jesus didn't deny that accusation because he knew he was a guardian. So in short, the Samaritan is Christ, who takes care of the human race and guards it when no one else could or would, namely the law and the prophets. Now there's more I want to get into in just a moment, but I want to take it just a Pause for a second and get your thoughts. What do you guys think about what Origen is up to right here? Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think? Does it feel weird? Strange? Mike? Yes. So to have deeper meaning. Okay. Yeah, and that's what Origen thinks, but that's not what everybody thinks, right? People have very strong views about this. Jeannie? Sure. Right, right. Right. Sure. That was my first thought. I was like, oh, that's a little, yeah. Laurel? Sure. I'm not a Samaritan, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so uh, I think what is, I'll, I'll get to you in just a minute, Laurel. So I think kind of what you're, and I want these opinions, right? That's the point of this. But uh, I think what, well, it's not what Jesus intended to say. And so Origen is pulling something out of Jesus' words that he wasn't actually meaning. So there's that. And that's a very common uh, uh, critique of what Origen is up to. Laurel? Yes, and what you mentioned there is, in fact, um, what the ancient church called the rule of faith. And they said any sort of mystical interpretation has to be in line with what the Bible says clearly elsewhere. So you'll find that in Thomas Aquinas, you'll find that in Augustine, where they're like, you can't just use this to say whatever you want. Now, there's more to it, but that was one of the controls that they put on it. Uh, Tyler, did you have something?
So I think maybe the word you're getting at there is allegory, right? It's not what the passage actually means, but you can kind of allegorize it to say something else. Now, allegory, if you have any familiarity with biblical interpretation, we're going to come to this next week. It's a bad word, right? Um, Because like Laurel said, well, it's not exactly contradicting, so maybe it's in line, but others have taken a harder stance and said, that is totally out of bounds. Let's not do any of that. But I think you're, uh, you're... Observation is correct, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and well, again, that gets to some of the questions of meaning, right? Because like, well, if I can take it this way and you can take it that way, isn't that a little shaky? Aren't we not standing on solid ground here? And so those are some of the uh, questions that people have. Jeff? Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, dual, dual fulfillment, which is very common in the Old Testament. Do you have something, Death? Don't understand it. Sure. Yeah, and actually, that I mean, that's a page taken straight out of Origen's book. You know, that's, that's exactly where he went with things. Now, the controversy, right, and we'll see this with John Calvin, was that, that is ex- almost exactly how Origen viewed the Scriptures. John Calvin and others just said he's taken it way too far. And so there's, you know, the, that question. Jim. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think the passage, I mean, my, when I went through this in the Gospel of Luke, that's kind of where I was, I mean, it's hard not to see in the Samaritan a figure of Christ. It's hard not to do that. And I almost had to put my blinders on to not go there. Laurel. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and parable specifically, right? This is not, we're not just talking about like a narrative in the Old Testament talking about what happened historically. This is a parable. So there's a little bit more uh, legitimacy to do this kind of reading. Um, but we'd also, you know, Origen would do it all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament. He read all those stories as having a deeper mystical meaning. So we need to move on. I, I want to open it up for some questions. Um, I got two. Well, real quick. Right. Right. Yeah. You're probing a little bit deeper, right? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good observation. Ty, what'd you have? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and I think what I... So, can you hear me here? Yeah, yeah. all right, good. It should be fine, Bob. I uh, foresaw this coming. Okay, but yeah, Ty, would, I think the, the point I'm going to make in the class is that a version of this type of reading whether Origen would recognize it as what he's doing, I think a version of this is a very good thing, and that this type of reading is what ultimately puts the Bible back in your hands. Now, there are some dangers, and uh, you know we'd be wrong to just pass over those, and I want to talk about them when we get into them, but this is a type of reading that, that matters. So let's, uh, Let's keep it moving, because I don't want to get you here too late. So Origen, um, he sees further mystical significance um, that the Samaritan put the half-dead man on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. So he says um, on the screen, And the man who had been wounded, uh, he placed on his own beast, that is, on his own body. He's speaking of Jesus. Since he deigned to assume a man. This this Samaritan bears our sins and grieves for us. He carries the half-dead man and brings him to, it's the Greek word for uh, in, I'm not going to try and pronounce it. He says, that is the church, which accepts everyone and denies its help to no one. So, the beast is Christ's body. Origen doesn't give an explanation, but I would think he probably gets there by way of... um, Christ's incarnation, he's born in a manger with the animals. That's just my guess. Um, and then the half-dead man um, is placed upon the beast. Christ, or Origen understands that as Christ's sin-bearing work on behalf of humanity. So if you grant the former, then it makes sense to draw that interpretation as well. And um, the inn, he says, to which he brings him is the church that accepts everyone and denies its help to no one. So more of the same, right? We see what Origen's doing. I think this time we're getting even a little bit more tenuous in our connections, we might say. Um, Origen, he then goes on to discover similar mystical meanings in other parts of the parable. So he does the same with the oil and the wine, um, with the two denarii. He calls that the knowledge of the Father and the Son. That's an interesting one. 
um, and so forth, right? He goes on and on. And so, again, he gives little to us by way of explanation, but I want to note a few things. He operates, Origen does, on the conviction that Scripture contains a literal historical meaning and then another mystical, um, we can call spiritual meaning. And that's what enables him to read the parable in the manner that he does. And second, Jim pointed this out, his mystical reading is, serves a purpose, and that's to bring the passage back to Christ, right? Um, the mystical meaning is also the Christological meaning. So that said, that's all I want to do for now is introducing you to the ancient way of reading is that there's just two levels here. They like, they all read, they don't deny history. You'll never, you don't really ever find that. You'll find it in some, and Origen will, uh, his views on Genesis are, you know, he, he in his, uh, what is the, I forget what the work is anyway, he, he basically says he doesn't take the Genesis passage literally. So he doesn't do that all the time. But the rest of the Bible, he takes his history. There's not a question there, but he also interpreted it according to this mystical meaning. Now, what we can see, though, is that Origen is doing something with the Scriptures uh, that, to us, if we're being critical, seems deeply unsound. Just, we don't do that. We are not taught to do that. We're, in fact, taught that's kind of a bad thing. We shouldn't do that. And one of the people who is most severely critical of this type of reading is John Calvin. Now, Calvin can kind of get caricatured as a bad guy. I love Calvin. He's a great, great Bible teacher. I disagree with him on some things, but he's my go-to for the Christian life. He's so great. So I want to say that because I'm not trying to set them in opposition to one another. So let's hear what uh, Calvin has to say on the passage. He says, the general truth conveyed is that the greatest stranger is our neighbor because God has bound all men together for the purpose of assisting one another. He glances briefly, however, at the Jews and especially at the priests because while they boasted of being the children of the same father and of being separated by the privilege of adoption from the rest of the nations so as to be God's sacred heritage, yet with barbarous and unfeeling contempt, they despised each other as if no relation had subsisted between them. For there is no doubt that Christ describes the cruel neglect of brotherly kindness with which they, had, they knew uh, that they were chargeable. So, in many respects, Calvin's interpretation is similar to Origen's. Uh, again, the emphasis on being neighborly. And yet, in many respects, and we'll point these out in just a moment, they're different. Um, Now, the similarities are evident, and that's to be expected given the clarity of Jesus' teaching. We ought to expect that. There are many passages in the Scripture that are obscure, and that two people operating by the exact same rules are still going to come up with differing interpretations because the passage is just shadowy. It's difficult. That happens. Um, But this passage is unified, and so there is... Uh, unity of interpretation, even among figures as different as Calvin and Origen. So Calvin draws the line that most interpreters do. He says the general truth conveyed is that the greatest stranger is our neighbor, right? He's saying the same thing that Origen said. 
um, is a difference of a, a, a minor inflection. Origen roots his command to neighborliness um, in obedience to the commandments. Remember his definition? The man going down was the neighbor of no one except him who willed to keep the commandments. And Calvin, on the other hand, roots his neighborless neighborliness in our common humanity. There's a difference. Commandments, common humanity. Calvin says, The greatest stranger is our neighbor because God has bound all men together for the purpose of assisting each other, he'll say later. So for Calvin, the duty to be a neighbor and to count all men as neighbors comes down to our shared human nature, right? We're brothers. We're brothers and sisters of the same family. We share the same nature. And therefore, um, because God has made us dependent upon one another and not self-sufficient, we must be neighborly, right? We must do these deeds of love to one another. Now, a more prominent difference, and here's where we're going to see the contrast between the two, a more prominent difference emerges when we consider what the interpreters give most of their words to. So if you look at Origen's sermon, um, he passes by that historical level rather quickly. He says a few words about the historical meaning of the parable, maybe a couple paragraphs, and then the rest of the message, he's engaged in mystical interpretation, right? Drawing out these deeper meanings of the figures in the parable. Calvin does none of that. Uh, Calvin spends all of his time in the historical context. Now, because he's so attuned to the historical context, he sees things maybe that Origen passed over. And again, what Calvin is careful to do is to note the spiritual and even racial pride that had crept into the Jewish consciousness. The ongoing tension, remember, between Jews and Samaritans each group considering themselves to be superior to the other. So because Calvin is, again, more attuned to historical matters, he's investigating the world behind the text, right? He's not going into the mystical reading. He's looking at the history behind it. So that leads him to his emphasis. And so being that Calvin understands the heart of the problem to be something of a racial problem, he stresses the common unity between um, the two people that should hold them together despite their quarrels. So he concludes, um, he says, from here, or for here, as in a mirror, we behold that common relationship of men which the scribes endeavor to blot out by their wicked sophistry and the compassion which an enemy showed to a Jew demonstrates that the guidance and teaching of nature are sufficient to show that man was created for the sake of man. Hence, it is inferred that there is a mutual obligation between all men. So according to Calvin, based on his historical mind, right, his, his approach rather, he says it's a matter of human nature. Uh, again, what does he say there? Uh, the teachings of nature are sufficient to show that man was created for the sake of man. So whatever our difference is, um, we can still learn that through nature. Hence, there's a mutual obligation, whatever racial or ethnic or 
cultural differences. So what we see from Calvin here is that he doesn't do anything of the sort that Origen does. And because of his heightened attention to the uh, contextual matters behind the text, he comes to a different emphasis, right? At the end of the day, they're saying the same thing. Go and do likewise. Go be a neighbor. But how they get there is two different ways. Origen through his mystical reading, Calvin through his more historically rooted reading. Um, so, again, for Origen, let's go back to him, and then we'll wrap up in a conclusion. For Origen, um, it's a matter of following Jesus' example. Calvin says nature. Origen says uh, Jesus' example. Again, because he says Jesus is the true Samaritan. So here's how he ends his sermon. The Samaritan who took pity on the man who had fallen among thieves is truly a guardian and closer, and a closer neighbor than the law and the prophets. He showed that he was the man's neighbor more by deed than by word. According to the passage that says, Be imitators of me, as I too am of Christ. It is possible for us to imitate Christ and to pity those who have fallen among the thieves. We can go to them, bind their wounds, pour in oil and wine, put them on our beasts, and bear their burdens. The Son of God encourages us to do things like this. He is speaking not so much to the teacher of the law as to us, and to all men, who, uh, when he says, go and do likewise. So that's how he ends his message. So, Origen's mystical interpretation leads him to Christ, whose mercy and kindness becomes the foundation for our mercy and kindness toward others. So let's pause for a minute and talk a little bit about John Calvin's method. Um, what are your guys' initial thoughts? Does that feel more familiar to you? Laurel? Well, yes, but another thing, too, that I noticed is that Calvin seems to be maybe, I mean, he was probably thinking he's separated from the world, but he's mm-hmm. a different cultural background. Yes. Um, that plays a part. I think that comes into it. Absolutely, it does. It does, yeah, there's no denying that. And I think um, next week when we talk about the history of interpretation, we'll see a lot of interpretation is contingent on one's context. Um, we come from a background that we can't erase, and we all bring that with us, and it's going to influence our reading no matter what. Um, so, yeah, you do see that in, in well, Calvin. And the other thing with Origen is that it's not like he's uh, way, off, way off in the clouds, because that's a very clear summary. Yes, Yeah, I mean, the way he ends that, it's hard to argue with. It's not like he's naive and saying, oh, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. He knows what it means. Well, okay, so I've got some homework. It's optional, but um, I've got a sermon from Origen in Exodus chapter 1 that I, I an email is going out at 9 uh, tonight. So you can see it's got the homework attached there. And... Uh, read Origen's, uh, his sermon when you get the time. That's the goal. I'll talk about it in a minute. That one is, you know, even for me, I mean, it's like, okay, I see what, I see what you're doing, but I don't know if I agree with all of it. So this one, that's a very solid conclusion. Maybe no, not all the time, but more on Calvin. What are you guys' thoughts there? Does that feel more familiar to you guys? Tyler?
I think Calvin would say it's the, uh, not the safe option, but the, uh, the, the uh, biblical option, right? He would say, Origen, you're, you're going way off the rails, right? Right. But he's saying there could be more to it. Sure. There's always a little, and I feel like that's the whole Bible. You know, what's going on? But I always feel like there's a little more to it underneath what the words are saying. See, I didn't expect this. Like a, like a undertone. I thought for sure I was going to have to be like going to bat for origin, and now I'm having to defend Calvin. I did, I, anyway. Uh, And we'll get to why Calvin is so against this type of reading, because the plain matter of fact is that it was severely abused in the Middle Ages. And talking about historical context, Calvin has good reason to say what he says. And actually, that's, that's a good transition um, into uh, Calvin's words. So uh, he ends his... Uh, his uh, commentary on the passage with, uh, with this. He says, As little plausibility belongs to another allegory, which, however, has been so highly satisfactory that it has been admitted by almost universal consent as if it had been a revelation from heaven. This Samaritan, they imagine, to be Christ, because he is our guardian. And they tell us that the wine was poured along with the oil into the wound because Christ cures us by repentance and by a promise of grace. They have contrived a third subtlety, that Christ does not immediately restore health, but sends us to the church as an innkeeper to be gradually cured. I acknowledge that I have no liking for any of these interpretations, but we ought to have a deeper reverence for Scripture than to reckon ourselves at liberty to disguise its natural meaning. And indeed, anyone may see that the curiosity of certain men has led them to contrive these speculations contrary to the intention of Christ. So Calvin brings out the big guns and he goes to town on what Origen is saying and what he's doing. So he calls allegorical interpretation, or rather he says that it lacks a proper reverence for Scripture because it obscures its natural meaning. So Calvin would read that passage and say, the natural meaning is not all this allegory and uh, mystical interpretation, the natural meaning is the parable is meant to serve that last line that Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's the point. He would say the point is not all these other things that have come up because all these other things obscure the natural meaning. And he says that those who engage in such readings contrive these speculations contrary to the intention of Christ. So remember I said that for us, the intention of the author is really, really important. Um, uh, Bob voiced that concern with the John 8 passage. And so, again, Calvin uses that to say, Origen is not reading with the intention of Christ. That's not what Christ meant to say. Now, he's finding things there that are just not permitted. So, Calvin's critique has stuck, right? Uh, again, allegory... Um, I don't tend to like that word because we misunderstand it a lot, but allegory is a bad word these days. Um, if you use allegory, it's kind of, you know, uh, a, a thought you're just trying to make the Scripture say what you want it to say. 
But I will say one word again, and Laurel's noted it, others have noted it in defense of Origen, and that I think Calvin misses the mark a little bit because Origen's interpretation doesn't obscure the natural point because he comes around to reaffirm it just as strongly, I think probably more strongly than even Calvin does with that uh, last statement we saw just a minute ago. Um, the natural meaning of the passage is go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. Now, Calvin gets there. Origen gets there. They just get there different ways. At the end of the day, Origen's allegorical reading may be pure speculation, but he doesn't employ it to disregard the natural meaning, but instead to deepen it, to tie it to Christ. So, um, we could make, again, a few observations, and I've made these already in our conversation, but Origen pays not so much attention to the literal, uh, natural meaning, and he instead uh, devotes his attention to the uh, mystical, uh, spiritual meaning. And Calvin does just the opposite. He devotes all his attention to literal meaning, finding no basis for allegorical reading whatsoever. And again, they wind up in the same place. You see how Calvin's historical reading, he goes to nature. Uh, Origen's mystical reading, he goes to Christ. So, um, again, let's pause for one moment before we uh, get to the syllabus and all that good stuff. Uh, What do you guys think of the difference? How does it feel to you? Um, Is it as wide as you thought? Is it smaller than you thought? Is some of that familiar with how you read the Bible, or maybe not so much? I actually like where, in the summary of Oregon, yeah. I actually Sure. Right. And I really enjoyed that part of it. Okay, so that, that Christ part. World, sure. All right, yeah, so it, it, it is foreign. Um, let me ask a question about, about um, accuracy, about sort of, because the concern here historically with allegory and mystical mean, or interpretation has been um, if you have many meanings, um, then you have no meaning. Um, and, and we're kind of undermining um, the solid meaning of the passage. Um, how do you guys feel in that department? Does that, uh, Jeannie? Absolutely. But if you're keeping in mind, right, the 
Sure, yeah. <laughs> A balance. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, so, Bob, I'll come to it in just a moment, but by way of um, multiple meanings. So there's a famous document um, about the Pope appealing to his spiritual authority over earthly rulers, and he goes to Genesis, and he says, See, the sun, the greater light, rules the day, and the moon, the lesser light, receives its light from the sun. So I'm the Pope, I'm the sun, you guys are the moon, you get your authority from me, not the other way around, right? So clearly, that's a way of allegory that is just self-serving. So there is that, certainly. And, and that's part of the concern that the, uh, the reformers brought to allegory. So, okay, Jeannie said balance. Bob, what did you have to say? Uh, sure. It feels, it feels very strange. Yes. All right, you check out. Sure. Right. Okay, so yeah, uh, let me use the case of a, a non Christian interpreter, Philo, who does similar stuff. Um, we have his book in the library, and he's huge on numerology. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get into it. And I just, I, I couldn't do it. I will say one thing by way of, uh, you know, Eastern mysticism. Like, we got to recognize our context, too. We're at the far side of the Enlightenment, rationalism. That stuff inherently looks skeptical to us. Um, but it probably wouldn't have been viewed that way um, in, in, in the biblical uh, time uh, when the apostles and them were writing because, in fact, allegory was... Uh, a very common way of reading uh, a lot of uh, literature. Um, it was different the way the pagans used it compared to the way Christians used it, but but there is that. But I get I totally agree with you, Bob. There are many times where I check out. Sure. John Corson was a guy, yeah, who I does a lot of that similar stuff. Liz. Mm-hmm. about Jesus and so forth. Um, I also agree with you 
Amen. Oh, well, yeah. Yes. Well, jump on the men's Bible study. I mean, we rarely agree. Like we, you know, it's always like someone says this and that and the other. And it's what we're trying to do is not say this is the one meaning but say, these are the false meanings. Let's not go that far, you know? And typically, Tom's the moderator, and that's how it'll go, you know? If, like, someone goes way off the rails, there's room to correct it. But for the most part, it's someone will throw out, hey, maybe this, maybe that, and we kind of just have our boundaries. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I think I used to be a little bit more uh, pharisaical about the meaning, you know, and used to correct people on the spot. But now I want to have a little bit more more uh, leeway for that. Laurel. And, and that's the goal, right? That's where we want to get at the end of the class because I feel like we are too dependent on commentaries and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's where we want to get. And I think I would even want to clarify that statement, Scripture interprets Scripture, and just say Jesus Christ interprets Scripture. Um, and uh, you'll see when we get to the Old Testament portion of this, when we do that New Test- Old Testament survey, you guys are going to be blown away. It, I mean... Anyway, yes. So I 100% agree. Aaron, wife. Yeah. Sure. And and in defense of in defense of Calvin, well, two things. You said one that Calvin his emphasis on nature coincides a little bit with um, the Hobbesian and Locke sort of uh, pure nature um, state of, what is it, the, the natural state of man, something like that. That's basically the foundation of our government and enlightenment ideas. Calvin is around that time, and people generally agree that the Protestant Reformation gave way to the Enlightenment. Um, but I think in, in defense of Calvin, what he would say about human nature, I mean, Calvin's the author of the doctrine of total depravity, 
I mean, so he does not have a, a, a very good nature view of human nature at all. Um, the most pessimistic view of human nature probably there is. Um, so I think what he means by that isn't like an airy, optimistic view of human nature. Um, I'd have to go look back at the commentary and view that a little bit more. But that's a nice segue. Go ahead, Death. Sure. I don't understand why you can't read the Bible in Mr. Jesus the way he says. You imagine the Apostle Paul when he was evangelizing, he knew that Old Testament and when he was open, he knew that whole thing was talking about Jesus Christ. Right. I mean, we just got no idea what's in in, in there, you know, it's just so I think we should I'm a liberal, you know Yeah. Right. You know, if, if God, if that's not God written word, then He want to put His word above everything else. Hmm. And it, it just, I have no problem in that putting Jesus, whether He interpreted right or not. But I, I sure. Know, but we should be reading and looking for. Looking for Christ. Yes. Yeah, so so what you had mentioned was like a like a incomprehensibility. Like, well, why why wouldn't we read like that? And what I want to show you guys next week is tracing the historical development and how we got to the point where eventually people said, you know what, we're done with this. We're not going to do that anymore because it's leading to X and Y bad things, right? So there's a there's a very clear historical progression where starting with Luther and then Calvin and then the reformers after them, where it got progressively amplified and they started to say, you know what, none of this anymore to where we get to kind of the point where we are now where most commentary commentaries um, ha- don't have that concern at all. Joy? Sure. Yes. That's my temperament too. I'm more on that side. Right. Yes. And um, sometimes paradigms of right and left don't always fit uh, what you're saying or at least the one you read most people read and people read in faith. Oh, sure. But just because someone says they're reading the Bible in faith doesn't mean they actually are. And, and a, a personal biographical note along with what you said, the reason why I began to go more on the, the Calvin modern side was because there was a lot of, you know, mystical reading that I was like, you're just saying what you want to say, justifying what you want to justify. And that is the danger. And we'll get to um, this mystical reading and we'll get to how, how to anchor it 
so that it doesn't turn into something very strange, ridiculous, and ultimately self-justifying. So that was a very good point. Todd? You were telling me like the, that I lean more towards the origin side. Sure. Yes. You can use that as more like in when I read the Bible when it says like, oh, save me from my enemies. There's a historical enemy in this story, but God is speaking to me personally like these are your enemies. Sure. Like it's and, and you can It's really hard to read those passages in a personal way without resorting to some form of allegorical association like that. And we'll get to that when we come to what we're going to talk about is the fourfold method. Um, so let's do that now because we're just getting a little bit, yeah, we're getting a little bit late here. I love all the questions, guys. This is like my, uh, my uh, anyway, it, it's, this is what I want. So um, we'll skip all that other stuff you can read on your own. Get down to the course outline. So mind the gap. That's what we did today. Um, and again, the goal here, guys, was just to stir the waters, just to get you familiar. Um, if you do have any serious questions and you do feel like I am a little concerned or whatever, uh, come to me. The goal was to do that, but I don't want to overdo it. So um, I would be happy to talk about that. Next week on the 15th, we're going to do a historical survey of biblical interpretation. And we're going to go through the main epochs, um, patristic, medieval, um, early modern, late modern, and then current. And it's probably be our longest one. I'm going to have to do a lot, little bit more talking, but um, that'll get us to a point where we could see, okay, here's the landscape. Now we see why we're where we're at. And the historical context helps us to make sound judgments. Because if we don't know history, we're just floating in the water and we're going to make bad judgments. We need to know the history. So we'll do that. And then the week following, the 22nd, what we're going to do is take our modern method, which is called the historical critical method, and we're going to put it to an assessment. We're going to weigh it in the balance, and we're going to see its strengths, and then we're going to see its weaknesses. And because it's what we uh, are familiar with, I'm going to be a little bit more critical and talk about why it has weaknesses and why we need to we need something, not something else, but we need to build on it, um, which will lead us March 1st to our theory of typological and allegorical reading. And that'll basically be where we bring the Bible into the picture and we provide from the New Testament a picture of how the apostles viewed the Old Testament. Um, and not just that, but uh, the framework, because there is a framework that they have. They're not just willing and dealing, playing fast and loose. There's a real theological framework behind it that makes sense of it. So then we're going to get into that. That'll be the one class where we're doing theology. It won't be too heavy lifting, so don't worry too much there. And then the eighth, we're going to put this method to use. And we're going to use um, uh, the story of David and Goliath, which is it's, uh, it, it's ripe for this kind of thing. So um, I'm really looking forward to that one. And then the 15th, we're going to do a survey of the types and allegories that the Old Testament has. Um, we're not even going to make it out of Exodus, but the big ones are all there, and they kind of set the tone for the rest of the Scripture. So if you're familiar with those, it'll help you with the rest of them. Um, and then the last one is the Psalms. So, Tyler, you were talking about this more devotional aspect, and that's where I'd like to end this. Um, the Psalms historically 
have been understood as the, the, the songs of Jesus, that he's the voice of the psalmist. He's the one crying out to God, save me from my enemies and who's delivered because of his faith. Well, I'll give you a framework for that that makes the psalms come alive in a way that you, I mean, could never imagine how rich they become when you're praying those words with Jesus' own voice uh, with you, beside you, um, inside of your voice, encompassing it. So, um, yeah. Any questions about what we're up to there? Okay. Um, Lastly, I put some recommended reading. Um, I have all those books. If you're curious, whatever, let me know. I will bring them next week, and I'll dish them out. The church paid for all of them anyway. So um, we'll get those to you guys so you can read and kind of engage in the conversation more. Any questions? All right. Sorry we got a little late, guys. I'm going to do better to keep that shorter next time. Let's say a quick prayer, and we'll leave. Father, we thank you for our time together. Um, We thank you for good discussion, kind of just set the table. And we pray, Lord, that as we go forward, uh, that you would guide us, Lord. Um, we rely on your spirit. We rely on, um, on you, Lord. Guide us and uh, teach us so that scripture would come alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen.